The recent events in Nigeria um, over the last two weeks have been simultaneously really inspiring and also very disheartening, very depressing. Um, for those who do not know, um, there was, is, a police group called SARS which stands for the special anti-robbery something, whatever. And um, even even among the police here, they are especially known for being very brutal. They stop people randomly, profile them based on how they look, harass them, terrorize them, and... Unfortunately, in, in more often than we would like, um, in a number of circumstances, also kill people. Um, they primarily prey on young men, um, claiming that the reason that a young man in Nigeria could afford to own an iPhone or have a laptop is because they engage in internet fraud or some other associated criminal activity. So they use this ostensibly as a an excuse or a pretext to now extort money from them <clears throat> and oppress them. So recently, due to, I'm sure, a combination of the stresses um, created by COVID-19, and economic hardship and more, there was a blow up. Um, people around the country decided to protest against the SARS units in particular. So this became a rallying point and a hashtag, end SARS. It was primarily a peaceful protest. Um, people gathered in at different um, key spots around the country um, I will focus on Lagos for now because this becomes very relevant. Um, there's, there are a couple of toll gates in Lagos and the largest one um, was occupied by NSARS protesters who did a combination of singing, wake-keeping for people who've been killed by SARS and just completely non-violent, non, in fact, also very peaceful protesting. They managed to organize to supply food, welfare, and so on to people who were there. And there was a women's group, Feminist Coalition, or Feminist Co, on social media that also helped to organize funds. So a lot of donations were made, and they were disbursing them based on different criteria. That's uh, Feminist Co. On the 20th of October, however, the governor of Lagos State um, imposed a curfew, initially announcing it at 12 noon and saying that it was for, for the curfew start at 4 p.m. And this was because there had begun to, there had started some um, violence, well, I don't know if I'll say violence, just um, unrest had begun to occur in different parts of the state. Um, where the places that are known as the mainland, um, 
in, in Lagos. So on the 20th, um, after announcing this, it turned out that, I mean, four hours to get anywhere in Lagos is insane if you know the traffic here. So um, he extended it to nine. But some people, some protesters decided that they were going to wait at the toll gate instead of going home. A lot of the social media um, hubs, let me call them hubs, for the protest network had encouraged people to go home and to come back after the curfew was lifted. It was a 24-hour curfew. But some protesters decided to stay at the toll gate, again, peacefully. They were not doing anything. They were not even making much noise, I think. But then, sometime in the evening, uh, members of the Nigerian army, or at least people dressed in their uniforms, showed up. And after some brief interactions with the protesters who started singing the national anthem and waving the Nigerian flag because um, news had spread that the army was going to be deployed, but that if you carry the Nigerian flag, it was apparently wrong, um, not allowed for them to open fire on you. I don't know where this information came from, but it was one of those things, you know. Um, unfortunately for these protesters, they were open fire upon without any provocation. And a number of them were killed. How many is in dispute, but to be really honest, it doesn't matter. Even if nobody was killed, the fact that the armed members of the armed forces of Nigeria opened fire on the citizens with live ammunition without any provocation whatsoever, and even if there was provocation, but let's leave that aside, is horrific. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail on the various machinations or perceived machinations of the political class to cover up, exonerate themselves, you know, all kinds of things. And there were all sorts of various incidents that happened before the shooting and afterwards that make it seem like it was a planned operation. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I don't want to use this platform to speculate on what, what did or did not happen or narrativize something or build some conspiracy. The facts are on the ground that all we know is these are the events. I watched the live stream of someone having a bullet been taken out of their leg. It's, it was a really, um, traumatizing thing to witness. Um, um, a bit after that, much longer than it should have taken, the president finally addressed the nation and completely dismissed all the concerns of the protesters, did not even mention the shooting at the toll gate, and said in, in very, very brief terms, you young people are ungrateful for the Benevolence I showed earlier by even deigning to listen to your demands. Go back to your houses and stop disturbing me. The next time you do so will not be as nice. Oh, an international community, stay out of our business. You do not know what is going on in our house. Now, um, this is not supposed to become some rallying cry necessarily um, on this you know podcast what i'm interested in being able to address here and you know how does new type sort of engage with things like this because we as new type 
I personally have not, you know, posted anything to do with NSARS. I've not pushed the hashtag. I've not posted images or, you know, video, etc. Um, I've been thinking. And it's one of the things that, first of all, I, I, I feel, I mean, protesting has never been something that I've, I've aligned with personally. And I don't say this in a, that I look down on protests. I, I want to be very clear. I think um, everybody should move with the, um, with the inclination that they have. I think people should do, act with, with, with what they believe is going to produce the effects that they want. And for me, based on what I believe and the things that I want to see, I don't think protesting is the best way to go about it. So that's for me. So I've been really thinking about this. But at the same time, I also really admired the bravery and efforts that were put into this protest. And the thing that really stood out to me was how organized, how this emergent, rather, this emergent organization happened in the course of the protesting. It's the first time I've ever seen such a thing, in, I mean, in, at least in my memory in Nigeria, in terms of how they were able to process funds, even when <clears throat> the bank and the payment platforms are supported, I mean, that, that, the, that the, the Feminist Coalition was using to receive funds and transfer funds decided to shut down their accounts. They were able to move very quickly to Bitcoin. Um, how people were able to supply enough food to, to feed all the protesters, how peaceful it was. They were able to even keep people who are traditionally way more violent or unruly in the Nigerian social class um, from, you know, they were able to keep them acting very peacefully until much later. Um, and how everything sort of coalesced, you know, using tools like social media, et cetera, et cetera. It was so beautiful to see. And I think that a lot of Nigerians who participated or even who were watching from outside like myself felt that, like we felt our own power for the first time in this generation. We felt our ability to make things happen for each other, not, not for ourselves. That is something that the average Nigerian knows. We, we, we provide our own power. We provide our own um, security, our housing, our protection, healthcare, education, everything, you are basically struggling to set that up for yourself. <clears throat> but in terms of being able to build something communal, something that works for not just ourselves and our family, I think that that's something that is very rare in Nigeria. And we are able to feel that spirit united to, you know, trying to do something for ourselves as a people. I think that was amazing. Um, I think that we should build on that. This is, this is my own perspective. I think that we felt that power. We've tasted it. And anybody who's known me in over the last few years or, um, you know, even follows new type now will know that I'm, I'm very much about the collective. I'm very much about the community. And I think that there are some things that we can really build on here with regards to collective intelligence, with regards to making community and becoming anti-fragile in, in an intentional way. Um, 
I use the term anti-fragile in the way Nassim Taleb means it, where to be fragile is something that does not tolerate disorder. Um, <clears throat> whether that is a cup that falls, you know, cups do well with stable surfaces, right? Where that surface starts moving around or glass maybe falls and it shatters. That's something that's fragile. And a lot of people would think the opposite of fragile meant robust or resilient, which is what you tend to see. People want to build resilient communities or they talk about resilient peoples. Um, but to be resilient means to not change, right? Um, you can resist change. You can resist stress and instability. But the opposite of negative is positive, right? Which means that something that negative that is negative and loses in drops in value. The opposite of that is something that increases in value. So something that does not tolerate um, stress. The opposite of that would be something that gains from stress. So that's something that's anti-fragile. Um, the simplest example, and again to borrow from him, is like with muscles. When you work out, you stress your muscles. You even tear them but then they come back stronger. Now, of course, everything has a limit. You can't um, lift a weight that is enough to actually break your back and permanently damage you, right? Um, that's not going to make you stronger, but you do these things to within a certain limit, certain boundary limit. But beyond that, he also looks at anti-fragility as a way of talking about risk. And I think we as a people need to stop focusing on being resilient. Accumulating um, the way the way the way we operate now, especially within a country that is actively stressing and being you know through so much crisis and instability in this country, we are we are in an aggressively um, predatory nation. Um, it preys on its people. We as a people are anti-fragile, the average Nigerian is anti-fragile, but it's not an intentional anti-fragility. It's not excess, it's not deliberate exercise. It's like the inc it's something that's incidental in the way a laborer, you know, carrying bricks every day is going to build muscle, but they may not necessarily be doing it intentionally. We need to move from being laborers and move to actually working out deliberately, focusing on different muscle groups and things like that. Um, this is my own belief. And fundamentally, I think we can start by first of all checking out of the game. I think this, I think politics, um, is a game and a game in the sense that a lot of things are games, you know, playgrounds. And I think to play that game, protesting, for example, is part of that game. Politicians will have a playbook to respond to protests. And protesters have playbooks to respond to politicians and governments and the state. Um, appealing to the police force. And anyway, to be very clear, I'm for police abolition all over the world anyway. But I think that being able to step out of that mood and say, okay, what do we want? What do we really want? You know, re-ask the question instead of focusing on the answers that we've been given for such a long time and just thinking, okay, we just need to look at it. You know, maybe, maybe we just need more. Maybe we just need this angle, right? Instead of that, we just say, let's, let us re-ask this question. What do we want? 
and what we want fundamentally as a people. What do we want regime change for? What do we want a good government for? It's to live better lives, right? At least this, this, this is what I think. And if that's the case, then that means that we can focus on creating that. And there are, lot, there are lots of different approaches to this. Some people, and, and, and I don't think it should be creating a better life for each person individually, which is how I think a lot of people tend to approach it, which is why you see people struggling, especially in, I mean, well, at least I speak for Nigeria, are struggling for, you know, to get into good universities so they can get good jobs, so they can get good salaries, so that they can retire or open some kind of company or something like this. Um, and I think that that's what a good life means. But I think we can, we can really look at that again and start redefining that, you know. Does the good life necessarily mean money? Why does it mean money? And then we ask that question again, you know, we, we, we re-ask the question. And a lot of the time, money is a means to an end, right? We don't just want money for its own sake. At least, you know, as long as one is not, you know, um, pathological in some manner. So, if that is the case, then, what do we, let us, let's, let's follow that thought. What do we want money for? Money gives us access to security, gives us access to healthcare, education, social standing, respect, security. If we can get all those things without money, would we need money? Because we know that money is also part of a game that a lot of, that is rigged against the majority of us, right? You need connections, you need family, um, um, uh, a family advantage, you know, whether that is you already have money. Um, you need luck, a lot of luck, if you don't have any of those things. And in a place like Nigeria, it means that you need access to something like the political class, or at least a kowtow to them. And if that's a rigged game, then we come back into the fact that we need to, to play a different game. We need to get out of that. So what else can we do? And this, this protest, I think, was a live demonstration of the fact that on mass, we were able to feed, secure each other, clean the environment, mobilize, do things, live. What happens if we start taking that mindset and applying it to local communities? Providing food security, farming, sharing resources to be able to provide land, sharing resources to be able to provide security for ourselves. I know by hiring some security company, a lot of places in Lagos, so after the protests, after the shooting, there's been a lot of disorder, a lot of violence, a lot of looting going on in different parts of the country. And... A lot of places in Lagos, at least, I can speak to this, were kept secure by neighborhood watches and the people we call area boys, who are essentially um, young men that are in gangs, well, loose gangs, um, so nothing as defined as the Crips, I don't think, for example, in America or like the Mafia or something. Um, they're just like loosely associated gangs that are of different areas. Um, and these are the places that are protected. I can speak to this even from where I live. Um, we are right next door, literally a one-minute walk to a big shopping mall. And while a lot of shopping malls around us were looted and burned, you know, like completely destroyed, um, ours was left completely fine because these area boys were able to protect us from the bands of looters who are also other area boys. And there are lots of other examples I can think of like this. And it was local. The police were, were nowhere to be found. Um, so 
I, I think these are things that we can provide for ourselves if we sit down and plan it like that. I think before we were colonized, we didn't have police people. We're able to organize our communities, deal with crime in our own ways, provide for each other with food. We didn't use money the way money is, cons- is considered now. And I know a lot of people hear this and think I'm advocating for some return to the past, some innocent past or some halcyon days kind of thing. And that's not what I'm saying at all. Back then, we also had a lot of problems. But I'm not looking at progression as some linear thing. It's spiral. It's, 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 it's entangled. I'm not even sure there's such a thing as progression. There's just some things that are better in certain contexts and other than others, right? And I think some things we, we should keep. I think being able to re-empower ourselves instead of giving up so much agency, the ability to determine where our lives move and things to government is something that we can reclaim. And in this protest, we saw it. Even around the world, the Occupy protests, the Hong Kong protests, it is incredible what is possible when people decide that they want to do something together. The level of organization, information sharing, sense making, so much of that just is incredible. I think we should apply that energy, that collective intelligence, that, that, that crowd form. We should apply it to other things now. We have to. We have those tools. I don't think that, I think there are very few places in the world where the political class has actually really Serve the people, and even if they have, they lack the tools to be able to deal with the complexity of the world ahead of us. Um, just to quote Nassim Taleb again, he talked about how when a system is too stable, it's basically waiting to blow up. That those variations that come from crashes, boom, bust, and so on, allow the system to be able to weed out elements that are not good and become more, to become better, you know, not necessarily more efficient, but more fit. Let me, let me use evolutionary terminology for the, for the environments, because environments are constantly shifting as well. You know, it's a complex system. So when we force stability on things, all those risks and things basically accumulate and then eventually they overwhelm the banks. And I think politicians, bureaucracies, governments, are about stability. They are about um, keeping things from being volatile. They are about building walls against complexity and against chaos. That's what they are for. And while chaos is very scary and uncertainty and volatility can cause the loss of lives, I think that having many smaller shocks and volatile things happening is better than one big shock every hundred years and with that big shock traumatizing people into trying to tamp down further shocks and then making the next big shock even worse i think we need to become more flexible less top down and smaller and the smaller we are the better we are able to manage shocks um we need to go more look we need to go we need to go more local um, we need to organize and we need to start building our own lives out. 
Now, I say this particularly in the context of Nigeria because there's so much energy right now and we need to direct it in some way. This is in no way trying to imply that any other methods are wrong. I'm just stating my own opinion and I think it's we have to explore multiple avenues and have multiple things running at the same time. This is, this is the system again, testing. We have to experiment. Nobody knows what the future looks like and we can't predict it. So we, we, we can only do work with experiments and we have multiple experiments running all over the country. So this is, this is one. I'm putting that down on the table now that we can work with this. And we also have to operate these experiments with the complete acceptance and knowledge that we are also operating in hostile territory. The politicians here do not want to give up power. They do not like it when they see something that they do not control and they are prepared to use force, deadly force, in order to suppress it. We have to acknowledge that. And that does not mean we need to go and arm ourselves or anything like this. Again, to be very clear, I'm also very pacifist. I think it just means that we need to be very cognizant of this and we need to move the way you would move in a dark forest. Um, we need to move silently. We need to move intelligently. We need to move carefully. And we need to pay a lot of attention. The journey is going to be longer than we think it's going to be. But I think it's also going to be much, or rather, it's going to be longer than we want it to be. But I think it may also be shorter than we think. We just have to really get put our heads down and focus and work. Um, I have some further ideas on this. I don't think this is the right platform to discuss them. Um, you know, the newsletter, but I mean, I mean, break it down over the next couple of weeks, but I'm also going to be hosting a few things that I'll notify people about on here. Um, I'm going to do a live, an Instagram live this coming week. I will also ask that um, you join it if you're on Instagram. Um, I've also set up some Twitter and Instagram feeds for the project itself, uh, Anti-Fragile Nigeria. Um, well, working title, at least it may, may change, and I think that's fine too. Um, I will put those links in the newsletter below. And I think that um, this is something that we need to get a move on now. And I think this applies to everybody in different parts of the world. I don't think any of us listening to this are happy with the lives that we have been born into and that we have been told is the way we're supposed to live. We can do better. We must do better. Because if not, um, I don't think our descendants are going to be happy with us or our ancestors. I would like to close this by saying that um, I was really inspired by Something I read by David Abrams, I think. I think it's what it's, it was in Emergence magazine. And he talked about um, the Iroquois Indians in America and how they had this idea of whenever, you know, you were planning something, you were constantly having to think about the seven generations ahead and behind. Um, who are the people coming after? Who are the people coming? And who are the people that came before? You must, we must always think that way. And there are a lot of buzzwords, a lot of books have been written. People talk about cathedral time and cathedral thinking and deep time and all these concepts, you know. Um, I mean, there are a lot of buzzwords, but I think the sentiments behind them are really important 
being able to stretch our sense of the impacts of the things we do and the, and the decisions we make. We are all part of a larger, much larger body of humanity that cannot, we, we, we cannot, and we have the responsibility to not pretend does not exist um, or act like they don't exist. Um, I would like to close with a, um, with the poem or with a statement by John Donne. Um, in his devotions upon emergent occasions. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were as well, as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. A lot of the time, this um, phrase has been split into two. It's either every man, no, no man is an island, or don't, never send to ask for whom the bell tolls. But I think uh, it's very important to look at the two of them together, and to also think about it not just in the context of the now, but in the context of humanity as an aggregate thing across space-time. No matter where you are, no matter when you are, we are all part of the same emergent, ongoing, you know, evolutionary experiment, this ongoing thing and or happening <laughs> process. Um, that's what humanity is. And we owe it to all the humanity that came before and all the humanity that could potentially come after to be constantly doing the best we can at every single moment, to be brave, to be intrepid. And we can do this. We definitely have the ability to. Thank you.